Well, good morning. Welcome. Uh, my name is Trevor. I'm the lead pastor here at Risen. It's good to be back here in the pulpit this morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to join with me in turning to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I want to begin by just welcoming those of you who are new to the church, uh, those of you who are just visiting for the first time. I really do hope that you experience the welcome of Christ here as, uh, in, our, in our community. That's something that's very important to us. And so we don't, no matter where you're at on your journey or what you're going through, uh, welcome. Thank you that you're here with us this morning. Um, we are in the book of Genesis. We have been in the book of Genesis for a little while now. It's been a joy in a ser series we've called Back to the Garden, where we are walking through the book of Genesis because so many of the things in the New Testament, when Jesus, when Paul, when others are asked questions about what does it mean to be a human, how do we live and who is God? They, they answer by going back to the garden. And so we have been back to the garden. And we've said that uh, if you get Genesis 1, 2, and 3 right, if you get that beginning of the Bible right, there's a good chance you're going to get the rest of the Bible right. And if you get that part of the Bible wrong, you're going to be probably off course for the rest of the Bible. And so this is an incredibly important section, um, and it is our beginning. We have covered so far God in our very first sermon. We've talked about who God is and, and what the character and nature of God is like. We've talked about creation and what God has made. We've talked about man and the sixth day. We've talked about multiplication, um, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, we've talked about dominion and ruling. We've talked about working, and we've talked about resting. And if you didn't already notice this, uh, um, uh, two weeks ago, Austin was in the sixth day with us, did a fantastic job helping us to see the beauty of this multiplication, be fruitful and multiply that God has for us, and the work aspect of it. And then Jim last week did a fantastic job in Genesis 2 talking about the importance of rest and uh, the, good, the difference between being good tired and bad tired. I thought that was really helpful. And also, what does it mean for God to rest and for us to rest in light of that reality and also the importance of work? You may not have picked up on this, so it's important before we dive in, um, is that Genesis chapter 1, when we read that whole text, it's the big picture of how God has created everything. And then by the time you get to Genesis chapter 2, after the seventh day, which is a section on rest, you then get God diving in deep and giving a more detailed account of the sixth day and how God created man. So Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are not conflicting accounts. One is just a sort of macro picture, and one is a micro picture. And we began that micro picture last week with Adam, and Adam uh, in the garden created by God, breathing the, uh, the, the breath of life into him, made from the dust, the first man, Adam, and then Adam given this responsibility to work and to keep the garden. And we, Jim talked about how every man has a garden to work and to keep, and work comes with the picture of sort of cultivation and provision, and keeping is guarding and protecting. And so we left off last week by talking about rest and work. We've got Adam in the garden by himself, and in that garden, he has been given all kinds of blessings. He's given life, he's given place, he's given work, he's given food, and now we're going to get to Adam's biggest blessing, Eve. 
And so this morning, we're going to talk about Eve, and we're going to talk about Adam and Eve, and we're going to talk about marriage and the final blessing of creation as we finish out Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. So um, the text will not be on the screen this morning. Other texts will be, um, but I, I, I know you can find Genesis 2. I'm certain you can do that. Um, so if you've if you got your Bible in front of you, that's helpful. Um, flip to that section. If you've got it on your phone, that's good too. But Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 through 25. I'll read this text and then we'll begin our journey together this morning. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. <clears throat> then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a, found a, a, a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This summer, I was sitting by a pool reading a book called How to Stay Married. It's a memoir about a, a guy who is a Christian who discovers after 18 years of marriage what it's like to have your wife come to you and say, I am in love with someone else. And the book is a fantastic sort of memoir about what happens from that moment. But when you're sitting by the pool as a pastor reading a book called How to Stay Married, people look at you funny. Which is strange and sort of odd because on some level, we should all, those of us who are married, be interested in how to stay married. I think we sort of look at someone reading a book like How to Stay Married and we start with things must not be well, as if every marriage has everything going well all the time. Marriage is hard. The hardest days of marriage are the days after you walk back down that aisle. Things are difficult. In marriage, you are married a while and then you discover one day that the spark is kind of gone. It was there, but it's not there the way it used to be. Or maybe you've been communicating a particular way, and you're just tired of communicating. Or you haven't exactly figured out how to deal with that conflict 
Most married couples, if you really press them, will say that there are a handful of things that they just feel like they keep talking about over and over and over and again, and it's exhausting. Or maybe trust is lost. There's a mistake or a betrayal, a failure that causes the husband and the wife to no longer trust each other. In that book, How to Stay Married, there's a great line that I love in the book, which says that compatibility is an achievement of love and marriage, not a prerequisite. I think we often think that two compatible people get married and then they live happily ever after, when the reality is two incompatible people get married and they spend the rest of their life trying to be compatible through sacrifice, love, and service. Marriage is two people choosing to love each other even when they struggle to like each other. This morning, I want to talk about marriage, and I also want to talk about what it's like to be single and what the, what the Bible has for singles. So this is not just a marriage sermon, um, but it is a marriage sermon because that is what the text has for us. So this morning, I've got, count them, seven points. Uh, they're not all equally long. You're not going to be here for two hours. Um, but I've got seven points this morning that all emerge out of the text. And I, I hope that as we walk through the text together and as I preach the text in our time together, I hope it would transform me as it, and it would transform you wherever the Lord finds you this morning. So let's begin with the first section, declaration. Verse 18, Declaration. If you look at verse 18, you'll discover that here as God has created Adam, God says in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. The first thing is noticed in the garden that's not good. And it's not that God made a mistake when he was making things. It's just that God wants you to know and I to know that in God's creation plan, that man, it's not good for man to be alone. In paradise, there was a need for companionship. There's this show on television. I don't know if you've seen it. I've seen a couple of seasons. During COVID, we got really into it. It's called Alone. And it's a show where in which they drop people off in a section of the world and just leave them alone. And who can survive the longest alone? And what drives them crazy is not just the reality that they have to kind of forge for themselves in the wilderness, but the fact that they are alone. When we want to torture people who are in prison, we give them one of the worst sentences, which is that we put them by themselves. Human beings are not made to be alone. We're made for companionship. We're made for community. So here we see that God says on day one, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. All throughout Genesis 1, God keeps declaring that it's good after he makes things. And then we hear, God, something is not good before it is what we call tov meod, very good. Before the very good is a not good. We see that in Genesis 2. Adam is alone. And Adam alone, you alone, man alone, isn't quite right. God wants us to see that what you need is not separation from others, but what you need is community with others. You need companionship. It's the first thing that is not good. And so God, looking at Adam and seeing that Adam is alone and seeing that Adam needs something, God discovers that he needs a ezer konegdo is what that word is, a helper fit for him. An opposite matching him. A helper opposite is how the Hebrew is actually translated. Adam needs someone who's opposite of him, designed to help him, who matches him. And that's the word ezer konegdo, which is not a lower role by any means, 
Instead, it's someone to help Adam with this task that he has been given responsibility over. And the word helper throughout the Bible in the Old Testament, even the word azur, which means helper, is a word used of God himself. I lift my eyes up, up to the mountains. Where does my ezer come from? Where does my help come from? God is a helper. And so when I, when I say that woman is made and she is to be a helper, Adam needs a helper. He needs companionship. He needs help. God looks at Adam and, and recognizes that he has something. She is not a, uh, an answer to his desire for self-fulfillment. Rather, woman is the result of God's improvement plan. God looks around and says, I can make this better. It needs woman. God looks at Adam and says, he's going to need some help. He's going to need companionship. He may not even see his need, but I do. And so I'll make him an Ezer Konegdo. Wives, I just, as we're preaching here this morning, walking through, I want you to just see at this outset that if you are a wife, when you are helping your husband, you are imaging God to him. You are a picture of God's support to him when you help him. See that work of helping your husband as being God to him, as holy and wonderful. So God declares, it's something's not right. The drama is building. What is God going to do? Next, vocation. Vocation, verses 19 and 20. In verse 19, it says now, and you're wondering, okay, now what's God going to do with the fact that this is, he needs a helper fit for him. He needs someone like him, but his opposite. And it says now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So, so God begins by sort of bringing animals to Adam. And what does Adam begin to do? What does he get to do? He gets to name the animals. Now, I mentioned this early on in Genesis chapter 1, that in Genesis 1, God creates. God sees the light, and God calls it day. God sees the darkness, and God calls it night. God creates. God names. But here we discover in Genesis 2, who's doing the Naming. Adam is doing the naming. Why does Adam get the right to name the animals? Because Adam is imaging God. He's bearing his responsibility. God is the creator and the namer, and Adam is doing this as he's, he's reflecting God's image in the world. He is exercising his dominion. He is operating as God's representative. Naming is a sort of act of sovereignty. There's power in naming. This week, I don't know if you saw the news, but one of the newspapers printed an article where they called, um, they called the Hamas terrorists, terrorists, and then they changed the name to gunmen. And they got pushed back and they changed the name again to terrorists. And it became a, a sort of, it bubbled up. And the question that was emerging is, who gets to name what this is? Because when you name it, you have some sort of authority over describing it as it actually is. Naming is a big deal. I mean, think about this. If you've ever thought about this, your parents, probably most of you, maybe not all of you, but most of you, your parents, when you were born, looked at you and just assigned a word over you. 
They could have called you anything, but they gave you a name, and you accepted it. And most of you just walked around being like, that's my name. Because some people above me were just like, you look like a Dietrich. And they're like, all right, I guess I'm Dietrich. That's who I am, right? That's my family. That's our story. Um, but like, it's just the power of naming is an act of sovereignty. And so Adam is naming as an act of his vocation. He is working, and in his work, he is reflecting the image of God. He is showing his responsibility, which is just a reminder that no matter what you do for your work, you're designed in your workplace to image God in your workplace. God doesn't stay at home when you drive to the office or wherever you show up to work. You are made to, in your job, show others what God looks like. Adam does that. So Adam is naming animals. And animals come to him and he, looks, he goes, man, that looks like a good pet. I'm going to call that dog. Man, that looks like a bad pet. I'm going to call that cat. Right? He starts naming animals. He looks at that animal and he goes, that is like a rat. That's a rat. And he's like, oh, a rat with a bushy tail. That's a squirrel. Right? So he names them. And as he's naming them, it's, it's clear that there's nothing that's like him. There's just all these creatures, but nothing like him. Him, he's unique, and he's alone, and there's no one for companionship. None of the animals were, were right for him. Man, man's best friend, as it turns out, isn't a dog. He has no one like him. And then we have operation in verse 21. So what, what does God do in verse 21? It says that, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. God put Adam to sleep. It's the first surgery in the Bible. It requires divine anesthesia. And God doesn't say to Adam, you've got a problem, Adam. Go find someone. No, God puts him to sleep, and God, in his kindness, once again, provides for his needs in a way that he would not have even known he needed it. Why does God put him to sleep? I think it's in part so that God, so that Adam doesn't get to say he has any role or responsibility in the process. And I love that God puts him to sleep. If I was an anesthesiologist, this would be my favorite verse of the Bible. Here he's doing the Lord's work. I'm going to put you to sleep for surgery. This is the Lord's work. Adam is asleep. In his sleep, he gets no credit. He has a need. He can't meet his need, but God will. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this morning that God knows your needs better than you do. That he sees your needs more clearly than you do. And that he will provide. He always provides. So often when we feel like we have needs, God is not the first place or first person we turn to. And how foolish is that? God knows us. He sees us. He ought to be the first one we go to. He is the provider. So Adam is out cold, and then from his, he's opened up, and from the opening, a rib is taken out. Adam, who was formed from the dust of the ground, now we've got this rib taken out. And this is not just a small detail. When Paul talks about husbands and wives in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is going to point out that woman came from man, and that woman was made for man, but then Paul's also going to say, but now every man comes from woman. There's a sort of complementarity here that exists in the text. So Adam is asleep, ribs taken out, new creation. 
Verse 22, beginning of verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. He took the rib and he made woman. Why the rib? A lot of people talk about this. You can read about it relatively extensively. There's, a, there's some notion of like the splitting of Adam and then the reunification in marriage because both bear the image of God in that unique relationship of marriage. It points back to the fullness of God. That's true, and it's beautiful. Um, I love this. I'll use this quote from Matthew Henry's commentary. I love this so much. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side, to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Men and women, do you see the beauty in this text of both the equality, but also the responsibility? Adam will be responsible for her. More on that in a minute. Because Adam was given this job to work and to keep Men's responsibility is to work, to cultivate, to produce, to provide, and to protect. When I, I often think that there's a great quote um, by Chesterton when asked, what's wrong with the world? And he was asked this great quote, what's wrong with the world? And Chesterton famously said, I am, which is a great response to that question, what's wrong with the world? I am. Um, and I think that's true, and I want to start by saying that. But I also just find it, it's a remarkable to me how when you look at most societies, most of the problem are men. There, there you go. Most of the problem in society are men. Look what's happening in the Middle East. What did we discover? Who is causing all of the terror? Men. Men are, have the... Uh, the ability to be violent and dangerous. They have the ability to, to, to destroy and to kill and to take and to harm. And so because men are the problem, what we need in any and every society are godly men to do the work of protecting against violent, evil men. We need godly fathers and godly mothers who are raising godly sons to be godly men who will care for the women in their lives. So if you're a husband in this room, your responsibility is to protect your wives and to protect your families. That's God's given responsibility to you. And if you are here this morning and you are not married, you are a single man, let me give you this calling on your life. Your job and responsibility is to make every space that you are in safer because you are there. Safer for the women, safer for the children, safer for the community. That's part of what it means to be a man. So God makes Eve. And then notice this presentation. Now, I love this. I saw it the first time this week. God makes woman from man. Adam's asleep, takes his rib, makes Eve. And then what does it say? Who gives this woman to this man? God does. Or you, get a little, you get a little wedding ceremony right here. 
God brings her to him. Do you see that in verse 22, part B? It says that um, he brought her to the man. One of my favorite moments in a wedding ceremony is when I get to do the ceremony and ask the question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the father often will be the one saying, her mother and I do. And I love that moment. I didn't appreciate that moment when I was younger, but now I see that moment even grander because it's, it's a reenactment of the creation story. It's a father and a mother who have said, we have been responsible for this daughter, and now we are entrusting you, young man, to protect her and to care for her. God brings her to Adam. What a privilege it is for Adam to then receive, again, not something he went out and sought. We, oh, you, you got to go find a wife. I get that language, but the more appropriate language is we got to ask God if, if you want a wife. you got to ask God for a wife. He is the provider. And what is Adam's reaction? Next, elation. Notice in verse 23, this almost functions like a poem. That moment, think about that moment. I know you've been to weddings, right? We all love this moment, don't we? When, um, when you're doing the wedding and the groom is here and then the groom looks over and the music changes and people stand up and the bride comes around the corner and he sees her in her wedding gown and everyone loves that moment. They look at her and they immediately do what? They all look at him. What does he look like when he's watching her? Adam is elated. He says, you are, at last, seen all these animals, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's like me. And Adam says, whoa, man. <laughs> he is in awe of her. He's never seen anything so beautiful. She's like me, but beautiful. <laughs> Husbands. Never stop marveling at the beauty of your wife. Not just her physical beauty, but her beauty as God's image to you, as a companion, as a friend. Don't ever take her for granted. Date her even after you get married. And then what does Adam do? And I already hinted at it. Adam, Adam names her. Because Adam is responsible for her. Adam is to care for her. Adam is created by God, made to provide and protect. And in, in his imaging of God, he names her. And what does he name her? He is, the Hebrew word is ish. She is isha. Ish, isha. In this, we find equality, mutuality, compatibility, teamwork, but also the responsibility that Adam has for her. He bears a responsibility for her that she does not bear for him. She isn't another creature. She is woman, and now the two of them are complete. Now, in the text, this is happening before Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. That's important I want you to see this quote from Derek Kinder, who wrote a commentary on Genesis. Kinder says, Eve is presented wholly as man's partner and counterpart. Nothing yet is said of her childbearing. She is valued for herself alone. 
Her value is in who she is, not what she will do. Ladies, you have been lied to by some who say that in order for you to be valuable, you need to do what men do. That is a lie. You have also been lied to by some who have said that in order to be valuable, you need to be a wife or a mother. That is also a lie. Because both of those make the same mistake. They place your value in what you do and not who you are. Don't confuse what you do and who you are. What you do is only a small part of who you are. So ladies, hear me when I tell you, you are made in the image of God. That's who you are. You were made to be co-rulers of God's world. And if you are a Christian woman, you are a new creation in Christ a daughter of the king, and a citizen of heaven. Your marital status or your number of children are not your identity. Last, unification. Verse 24. Moses, in his writing of Genesis, pivots and now begins to give you some commentary about what's just happened. And he says in verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here they are, Adam and Eve. And here Moses gives you this commentary, which is, therefore, this is what is to happen. A, a man is to leave his mother and father, is to forsake, not abandon, but removed from that, that as being the primary relationship, which is a big deal in ancient culture. And he is to leave that primary relationship. And now in this new relationship, he is to cling to her, hold fast to, the ESV says, which has this notion of permanence as Adam and Eve now are husband and wife. They are now to become one flesh. This is the foundation of marriage. This is biblical marriage. Divorce isn't the way it's supposed to be. When Israel has wandered for a little while, this injustice begins to occur in the community. Men who stop taking Genesis seriously, start abandoning the women in their lives so they can trade off to another woman. Moses, in order to be able to help these women gain some sort of economic status, gives them the right to have a paper, a certificate of divorce. It's a concession for justice. Jesus is asked about this when he's tested on the question of marriage and divorce. And the question to Jesus is, Jesus, what, what do you say about marriage and divorce? Is divorce okay, given that, given that Moses was giving out certificates? And this is what Jesus responds in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. But, be, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man, any man, separate. When Jesus asked about marriage, where does he go? The garden. Marriage is the God-ordained, lifelong, covenantal relationship between one man and one woman. That's what it is. And in L.A., we don't know what it is anymore. We make the mistake of thinking too little of it or too much of it. Too little of it. We, we think that it's ours to define. So we have same-sex marriage, which isn't marriage. Or open marriage, man and a wife, and they want to both sleep with someone else, and they think that's good. That's not marriage. Or polyamory. Let's do three of us. Not marriage. Divorce. Or as we sometimes in L.A. call it, conscious uncoupling. Hey, I like you, you like me, let's do this until we don't want to do this anymore, and then we'll go our separate ways and do it again with someone else. That's not marriage. If you think marriage is made by man, then you are likely to think that man, with it in his hands, can make of it what he wants. But if marriage is made by God, then God gets to define what it is. So we think too little of it. Some of us think too much of it. We think she will satisfy all of my needs. He will satisfy all of my needs. You, you complete me. <laughs> marriage doesn't complete you. If marriage completed you, you would be married forever. But Jesus is explicit in declaring that there is no marriage in heaven. Therefore, it cannot complete you. There are so many unhappy marriages where in which people enter into the marriage relationship believing that they will be able to solve each other's problems, that they're the answer to each other's loneliness or frustration or sin. Marriage does not exist to make you happy. Marriage exists to make you holy. It teaches you how to be Christ to someone else for a long time. It's beautiful, and it's a blessing, and if you have it, you should thank God for it. But let me say this to those of you who are single in the room. Again, marriage cannot satisfy all of your needs. If it did, it would last forever, but it doesn't. Adam doesn't just need a wife. Adam needs companionship. Adam doesn't just need to be a husband. He needs to be a, a father. He needs to be a brother. He needs to be a friend. He needs all these relationships that exist in the context of God's people. If you are single, God has promises for you that are better than marriage. I want to show you the way that Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. <clears throat> Paul says this. I want you to be free from anxieties. Anyone want to be free from anxiety? The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. Hold on. Paul says, look at that turn there. The unmarried man has a kind of anxiety, a holy anxiety. And what's the anxiety for? It's for the Lord. 
how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to you for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but promote, to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Single brothers and sisters, you show us married people what a life fully dedicated to Christ can look like. You show us that the family of God grows primarily through faith, not through marriage and children. You show us that marriage is merely a temporary picture that points ultimately to the eternal, namely Christ and his bride. And you show us that faithfulness to Christ is the most important and ultimate relationship. It is a gift to be married. It is a blessing to be single. The text ends in verse 25 by saying that Adam and Eve are naked and they feel no shame. In their unification, they are unified not just in, uh, in, their, in their physicality, but they're also unified in their sense of they're sinless. There's no need for covering. There's, there's no, this is not a shamed, like, uh, you're, it's the, it's, they, they have no awareness that there's anything to be worried about in regards to being covered up. And they have that because in the Bible, shamefulness and sin seem to come together. And so here you have sinlessness and shamelessness. Um, they exist together because they are sinless. Adam and Eve, in this moment, Genesis chapter 2, before we get to next week, they are sinless all as well. They are sinless we are not. We're a mess. Some of us have failed to lead. Remember Jim talked about last week about the wonderful Sue Knight telling Jim, hey, you have a job here. Do it. Some of us have failed to lead. Some of us have failed to help. Some of us have failed to love. Many of us have been selfish. We've said what we shouldn't have said. We've pointed the finger at them instead of ourselves. We never said, I'm sorry for that thing that happened back there. We've committed adultery. We have not been the husbands that God has called us to be. We haven't been the wives God has called us to be. We're married and we've been like, oh, I wish I was single. We've been single and thought, oh, in order to be happy, I need to be married. We've idolized these things, and we failed, and we need help. We need help. When Adam needed help, he was put to sleep. His side was cut open so that he might have a wife. When we need help, Jesus' side was opened. His blood was poured out so that he might have a bride. Christ loves his church, cares for her, and seeks to cleanse her and make her more beautiful for his glory. So if you are in need of cleaning or care or forgiveness or the love of God, I invite you this morning to repent 
to confess and to trust in Jesus, the one who went to the cross to make you his bride. Let him be your bridegroom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's much to be said about marriage, and I feel as though we've only scratched the surface. I pray that we would take this text seriously and we'd be shaped by your word. Much like our catechism and much like Michelle's prayer earlier, God, when we hear your word, help us to accept it with faith, to hold it in our hearts, and then to practice it in our lives. Lord, we can't be the husbands we need to be apart from you. We can't be the wives we need to be apart from you. We can't be the community we need to be apart from you. And so, Lord, we turn to you and we ask for you to do what only you can. Help us to celebrate the beauty of marriage, the blessing of singleness. Help us to trust that you know what's best for us, you know what we need more than we do, and that you will provide because you always provide. And for those who are here and they are weary and they are struggling and they are tired and they are weak, Lord, would you be their strength? Would you teach them how to repent, how to confess, and how to believe in the good news of the gospel? That the gospel is not that we can get this all together on our own, but that you long to help us. You are our help. So we cry out to you this morning and say, Lord, help.